0: You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno.
1: Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. So excited about this week's guest because, well, he is a friend, a longtime friend that we actually deployed together More on him in just a moment. Just a few quick notes. Um, As we continue going forward uh, with all the events after Afghanistan, we are always encouraging veterans, please, if you're struggling, call somebody, talk to somebody, reach out to a vet, reach out to friends, make sure they're okay. We can't continue to echo this message enough to our audience. So please uh, do not let the events of what has happened in Afghanistan get you down and keep you down. Uh, You have the tools in your tool bag to get through this. Just remember, uh, there is help available. Please seek it out. With that, reminder to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazaground Podcast. And keep those Apple reviews coming. Uh, if you're following us on social media, see we posted a bunch of them this week. We continue to get more reviews trying to crack the top 100 Apple Podcasts, but we need you guys to leave a short review. Give us five stars. doesn't have to be anything lengthy. You can do it right from your smartphone. Super, super easy, and we appreciate all of the support. As well, don't forget about our promotion with Amazon on our website, HazardGround.com. You can click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. You do all of your normal Amazon shopping, and we'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and then we donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities featured here on the Hazard Ground. Again, it works right from your smartphone, so if you go to the website, HazardGround.com, click on the Amazon button. Uh, It'll redirect you to the app or your credit card information is saved, super, super easy. So please continue to support veterans by going to HazardGround.com first when you do your Amazon shopping. This week's guest, it's been like forever since we started doing this show that I've wanted to get this individual on. When I tell you he's got a resume that is a mile long and it is one of the most noteworthy ones I've ever seen. After 11 years in the Army as a Green Beret, uh, multiple deployments overseas, spending time teaching at West Point, downloading all the knowledge that he learned Onto other young officers who were going to lead the military, after that he ran for office for the u s House of Representatives in his home state of missouri went on to be a senior advisor at Iava iraq and afghanistan 's uh, Iraq and Afghanistan veterans. For America, a senior advisor there. Went on to work at the VA as the Assistant Secretary of Public and Intergovernmental Affairs uh, at the VA. Went on to be a professor at Duke. Founded his own company, Golden Key, a real estate tech company. And now currently serves as the president of Fly Exclusive, which proudly fulfills the mission of providing high-quality, safe and reliable, point-to-point private jet travel industry. Um, Just an amazing, amazing resume. And he is Tommy Sowers joining us. On the hazard ground, Tommy. Uh, it's the first time you and I have actually laid eyes on each other uh, in probably the better part of fifteen years. But it is great to see you and talk to you once again.
0: Yeah, Mark. It is fantastic to be here. Congrats on all the success. The kids look amazing, and you know it's a long way from sitting on the back porch of a Iraqi mansion, like you know, decompressing after a day. So it's it's great to see you.
1: Yeah, um, and full disclosure, you know, so Tommy was one of the Green Berets that I worked alongside during my first deployment, and uh, it was kind of, you know, an instant connection between you and I, just sort of kindred spirits, uh, and we spent a lot of time, you know, after long days and, and long missions and everything else just talking to one another, but, you know, we always talk about the bonds between soldiers, and I think that's, you and I, Display that perfectly because it's been such a long time. I and mean, sure, we've communicated back and forth via text here and there and via social media. But, you know, haven't sat down for a long form conversation in many, many years. But uh, it feels like we never stopped sitting on, on that back porch uh, of Rodmania Palace complex many, many years ago.
0: Yeah, that's that's great. No, I mean, it was it was clear you know, Greenbrae's end up working with a lot of uh, different folks, and we just kind of gravitate to the folks that, for lack of a better term, just can get shit done. And, uh, and y- you were a great leader back then, and, uh, you know, I-, I love that you continue to serve, and uh, it's just great to see you again, Mark.
1: A- absolutely. All right. Uh, more about your story, obviously, while you're here. Uh, you went to West Point. Uh, as a young man. No, I'm sorry, you went to Duke. That's right. You went to Duke and did ROTC right. there. See, I had to remember. Um, you taught at West Point, but you went to Duke and that's where you went through ROTC and got your commission, right?
0: That, that's right. So, you know, I I was actually uh, medically denied for ROTC because of back acne at the beginning. And that that was like my first lesson of having to like the military is just going to say no. So it was an early lesson for me of like, how do you get to yes as quickly as possible? And, you know, their concern was I couldn't carry weight on my back. I ended up, you know, probably carrying some of the heaviest loads that uh, that people have to carry in that. Um But, yeah, went to Duke, thought I was just going to do a, you know, four year uh, do my time. It was, you know, the mid 90s might go to uh, the Balkans. But a couple of formative experiences there really uh, changed my outlook. Um, and uh, one of my uh, NCAA, uh one of the NCOs was a, was a Green Beret. And that was my first exposure to that part of the military that I really knew nothing about. And, um, and it, you know, it was a small program at Duke. There were, I think, seven people uh, in my class. But it was a it was a great program that was really customized uh, for uh, for the students at Duke. So, um, I, you know, decided I'd try it for a year and ended up trying it for, you know, uh, that plus the time in college, like 15 years.
1: Now, you were commissioned a year before me, but you actually ended up getting to a deployment in Kosovo before anything in the war on terror.
0: That, that that's right so i uh, was commissioned in the uh, corps of engineers was combat engineer and so did the officer basic course and then uh and then ranger school and airborne school and then showed up in germany right when all the kosovo stuff was going down and uh so it was lucky really to be a platoon leader um and on my first tour you know six months after getting uh, to a unit and that was I I don't know if you remember, Mark, but that, you know, that was at the time where if you wanted to actually join the military and actually deploy, the options were really small as you needed to go to the 82nd or, you know, a couple of different places. So uh, being a platoon leader in Kosovo was uh, was a great leadership challenge. And also one of my first assignments there was uh, being sent up to the Russian sector to live with the Russians and build fortifications for them because they were getting shot at by the Albanians. And the only other Americans up in that sector was a green beret team and it, getting to work around those professionals and see, they basically were plunked down and say, kind of do good things for America. Here's a bunch of talented guys to work with. Uh, but a lot of autonomy and a lot of kind of entrepreneurial approach to, uh, to conflict. So uh, that really solidified hey I should do that for my next step put my packet in and a couple of days le- later 9/11 happened uh, so uh, was in that it was in you know kind of that shoot of training when, when all that was going down
1: right so uh, you go to uh, Special Forces assessment and selection and then on to the Q course and uh, not to laud your accomplishments but you graduated first in your class at the Q course um, that's one not surprising but two that's uh, that, that's best of the best right there stuff.
0: Well, so it, it, I would say it was, it was kind of a r- rough transition because r- right before that, I was able to go over to England and do a scholar program. So I literally went from you know, Covent Garden, you know, penthouse apartment and to getting my master's degree to like smack dab into like phase two of the Q course on that. Uh, but I, you know, I made some fantastic friends uh, through that and, you know, some friends I still have uh, to, uh, to this day. So, not gonna really comment on the distinguished honor grad stuff. They just, you know, they I, they, they had to they give the someone right? that out. Yeah, they, they yeah. have to hand yeah. out those but things, got- and
1: you, you you may as well have accepted it. Right, makes make, makes complete sense. Uh, will we'll allow you to stay humble there. Um, so then, um, in 05 to 06 is when you and I meet, uh, in Iraq, uh, for your first deployment there and mine. Um, and you know, for those who haven't been paying attention to the finer details, you know, what always struck me about you more than anything, you know, I I walk into this Greenberry world and I'm just, you know, one, I'm sort of in awe of it. um, And two, but I'm, you know, out of my element and trying to find my way. But, you know, you had such a great balance of cerebral nature and the ability to be a warrior at the same time. And it's really hard to strike that balance. Um, And I think that's what made you such an effective leader and somebody that I gravitated towards, because in general, I mean, you know. I was made better by you. I was made smarter by you. You helped me understand the environment. You helped me understand sort of, uh, you know, how to operate um, in in an unconventional manner when my entire career had been beaten to me to be very conventional. Um, And so from that standpoint, you helped make my job easier on a day-to-day basis, even though, you know, our jobs are sort of parallel but never really crossing, if that makes any sense to the audience there. Um, But, you know, that first deployment for you uh, to Baghdad, just kind of explain your guy's mission there and, and... and what you were charged with?
0: Well, well, there was actually a deployment just prior to that. So my first deployment was in 2004, a couple months after I got to 10th right. uh, Group, and so that was a very you know traditional Green Beret mission. So I immediately plunked on a team. I was the youngest guy on the, on, on the team, and we are. My first deployment was from I believe uh, November of 04 through about uh, June of 05. And that was you know, a classic Green Beret mission. I mean, I lived in a house in the middle of a city, uh, a multi-ethnic city. And uh, it was sort of just outside of Salah Aden, right when all the Sunni insurgency was really kicking off on it. And that was an awesome mission because, you know, I saw my boss like once a month and was kind of left to do good things for America. So, the, you know, the challenge of that was that was much more of a combat mission um but you wake up every day and and it's what should i do should i go meet with insurgents and try to flip them and you know get intel on the, the rest of them should i go meet with a a sheik to uh, create a jobs program uh so you know did or should i go train lead and advise iraqis so that we can work ourselves out of a job here and so I had a fantastic team d- during that deployment. Uh, a lot of stress, kind of again living not on a big base, uh, you know, but in a house in a city. And then the second deployment where where we met was, I mean, it was very generous of you to call me a warrior because I mean I was a PowerPoint warrior for uh, for most of that deployment. Um, started, you know, advising the uh, Iraqi Special Operations Forces that was also based uh, at a different part of the Baghdad Airport, and then uh, to my, uh, reluctance and chagrin was pulled up to be the special forces advisor to the Baghdad commander. And so that was in, I mean, I mean, you saw me when I was getting huge. I mean, I was working out and eating like 12 chicken breasts a day and, you know, all that brown and root stuff and, um, and, you know, living in a kind of a mansion, uh, in, in that compound. Uh, so, but that was what I was asked to do, you know, for it. So I, I w- wasn't happy about it uh, initially, but it did have to create a lot of working by with and through. In this case, working by with and through a two-star general who had sixty thousand folks underneath him, and special forces was just a small part of their day. Now we did everything every night, but um, that was a. I hated it at the beginning. I like. I, I mean, I went from you know with my team to at a desk talking with generals. And in general, I tried to not talk to generals as much as possible in in my military career. But um, but yeah, that's that's where that that's where we met on that. And I appreciate those 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 comments. I I, I would definitely not call myself a warrior on uh, on that deployment. No, but
1: I mean, again, it's the, it's the warrior mentality coming from. That first deployment and what I think was so critical, at least, you know, for me is understanding that ethos and that mentality of Green Berets and why it's so um, ingrained in what they do on a day to day basis. Because, again, I had a very similar mission to you in a a sense that my main mission was advise and train. It was foreign internal defense. It was build up the Iraqi Special Operations Support Battalion, um, which, you know, I, I was... I said it repeatedly on this podcast that if you laid out all the assignments in Iraq and said, here, Mark, as a mid-grade captain, pick one. I could have never picked a better one on my own. I had literally no idea what I was getting into. I was just very fortunate um, to be in an environment where I was able to flourish. Um, And like you, I'm a very autonomous individual who doesn't need much instruction. If you sort of give me left and right limits, I can can operate within them. And I'll come back for a question here and there. But for the most part, I, I, I can figure most of it out on my own. And I was given this sort of, um, you know, the the capacity to do that. I think it made me a better leader. It made me a better officer. Um, But furthermore, you know, uh, it it allowed me to operate in an environment in in the Green Beret world where, as you said earlier, just get shit done, because there wasn't really much tolerance. I've always said when I talk about my experience that, you know, the Green Berets, they're not going to tell you when you're doing it wrong. They're just going to find somebody else to do it. You know, they're not going to hold your hand through it. They're just they'll just find a different solution. As you said, you know, it's just get, get things done. And so the only way I knew that I was doing a good job is that they kept giving me more work. Like they kept coming back to me with more and saying, Hey, Mark, we need this. We need this. We need this. Okay. Well, I'll just keep getting it for you. And as long as I kept producing, I felt like I had some value to the team, but you know, in, in a lot of our conversations, and I think one of the things that I took the most out of that whole deployment was, you know, the value in, in, in being a role player, like it's, it's not always about being the center or, you know, the center of gravity of any given mission. Um, I got to I got a chance to do a lot of things I probably shouldn't have done probably wasn't necessarily trained to do and be a part of but um, you know whatever small piece of the pie that I had for as long as I had it I had control over and from that standpoint I was able to have a positive effect on everything that we did Um, but again I, I attribute that understanding of that to a lot of the conversations that you and I spent together.
0: Yeah, you know, that that deployment was interesting because the previous deployment was working by, with and through Iraqis to kind of, you know, do America's will. Uh, And that deployment was a lot more working by, with and through two star generals to also, you know, do what we thought was, uh, you know, the best to give us freedom of action, to give us the opportunity to go after targets. And so it was a different sort of influence operation on that. uh, And uh, but I, I do remember our, our discussions about it because it, it was a really challenging time in Baghdad, where basically a civil war was uh, was was happening. And when you saw that at the strategic level of, of folks, and I, I'm not trying to you know call out names, but you know the strategy clearly wasn't working, and the people tasked with creating strategy needed advice and needed counsel on that because I saw this increasing default back to well, let's go back to like core metrics of you know number of IEDs that we found or number of insurgents that you know captured or all that when really you know a different strategy was needed. So uh, that's you know I was trying to channel uh, you know my boss, the uh, the um, uh, 10th group you know commander and the 10th group uh, battalion commander. Who had their own vision of how we should be, you know, prosecuting that war. So it gave me a really interesting seat at going from, I would say, the very tactical level on the on the first deployment to a very strategic level on on the second.
1: You know, uh, to t- to make this conversation take a tangent, just to mm-hmm. we talk about the strategic stuff and obviously everything that's gone on, you know, in Afghanistan. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I've said this openly, and I don't think that there's there's a lot of people who disagree, but. To that end, you know, the military itself owes a lot of the blame for failures in Iraq and Afghanistan because strategically anybody who's spent, I, 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 this is what I say, anybody who's, who's graduated basic training, okay, and has a basic semblance of what basic combat skills are and then spent any amount of time with the Iraqi or Afghan army knew they could never be us. Right. At the most rudimentary level, they were never going to be as proficient at this as we are. There might be small little factions of it. And the unit that we work with certainly exuded those those factions. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't enough to sustain a country and it wasn't enough to defend a country. And so to that point, um, you know, as somebody who has worked at the strategic level, um, even at higher levels of government that you've been through, is that a fair assessment that the military itself owns a large part of the blame for 20 years of Afghanistan and, and what, you know, uh, eight years of, of Iraq.
0: Well, he, he, here's how I think about it is, is people, it, it's, it's less about assigning blames, but, but going back to the core decisions that were made on this. So, you know, you start at the beginning of Afghanistan and it, it was actually one of the most brilliant military campaigns, uh, in modern history. And, you know, uh, there's maybe some hubris here, and it wasn't me, but it was predominantly fifth group, you know, green berets who, uh, you know, 500 folks, you know, go in and and topple the Taliban, ask, you know, oust them from uh, power, do by with and through. But then I also remember that time. I mean, everybody wanted to be involved post 9 11, and so you think of all these generals kind of sitting on their hands after sitting broadly on their hands for, you know, for decades in, in a peace building operation. And now's our chance. Now's our chance to, to show this. So that decision to say, Hey, we should move this from this counterterrorism operation to a nation building operation. It wasn't just generals, but you know, you had a bond agreement where we're going to create somewhat of a Jeffersonian democracy and one of the hardest places in the world to do that. Um, and, you know, I love the military and military folks are going to come in and, and do their best. But certainly, you know, if I cataloged all the different statements over the past 20 years of we're close, we're rounding the corner, the Afghan army's ready to go, all these things that of course have unraveled. I, it, that's our history now. And so for me, what's, what's critical is that we learn from our history on this. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that brought me na- national attention when I got out of ran ran for office was calling for the end of the uh, in the, the war in Afghanistan. And this was in oh nine and 10. We had spent about six hundred billion dollars. Uh, now we've spent two point three trillion dollars and and blood and treasure and sacrifice and divorces and missed second grades and missed third grades and all that burden that has been carried and our political leaders have to have, um, before we consider the next one, really think through the the nation-building aspirations that got us in, in and kept us in for 20 years.
1: Yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, there's no simple answer to any of this. And, and yeah. again, we could we could take the next two hours you and I to discuss all this, and we, we don't need to because that's not the point of this. But just somebody who has strategic-level experience, I was just curious on your viewpoint of the whole thing. Um, So, well, I I mean, mean,
0: just one other example I give you is, you know, so Columbia and the FARC, I mean, Columbia and the FARC could have been in Afghanistan, uh, but instead it was a handful of Green Berets rotating down there. It was a heavy burden on one specific group, but it was by, with, and through the Colombian people and, you know, we don't talk about Colombia very, very much. Its economy is is booming. Uh, the FARC is is really not a political factor. And that's an important lesson is not just kind of like just look at Afghanistan, but also look at some of the other successes that may be under the radar that we did at a fraction of the human and capital cost uh, uh, of Afghanistan.
1: Yeah. Um, and and Ultimately, that's something that will will be forgotten quickly, which is the sad part about it, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. um, we we can turn the page uh, pretty very quickly in politics, especially nowadays in in the news cycle that we live in. Um, But ultimately, uh, that is still something that I I think as veterans, it's our responsibility to continue to remind people of that. um, That sacrifice, more than anything, is sort of uh, should should be at the forefront of the discussion. But again, uh, alas, it 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 likely won't be. Okay. So, uh, that deployment ends and well, I, I, can I put you on the spot now or should I wait till later? Uh, go go ahead, Mark. If you can't come up with anything, that's fine. I just give me one memory from our deployment that you remember something you and I did some story. just the audience always asks about me and I never tell anything about myself. So I'm going to allow you to tell something about me, good, bad, embarrassing, different or otherwise.
0: Well, you know, my recollection, again, it was that, you know, when, whenever you deploy uh, as Green Berets, you usually get some bolted on folks, um, you know, to you. And uh, and usually the folks, you know, from conventional forces and they're they're pretty happy to be with Green Berets like we tend to have sort of access to adult beverages. We tend to be a little bit more casual. We tend to be, uh, you know, and and again the the cream really rises you know to the top on this so i just remember sitting on our uh, the back porch of the little palace that that i was in and and you were uh incredibly frustrated with uh the progress of uh the training for the support battalion uh on it and i just remember like working working through because it's a teaching mission you know it's uh, i thought I was a good teacher and then I had to train, you know, 500 Iraqis to move from like bakers and plumbers and electricians into our version of uh, special operations. I just remember you being exceptionally frustrated with like the lessons not getting through. And then we talked a lot about how do you teach? Uh, you know, how do you actually and, and one thing I've learned about teaching, which is a tough thing and it's this odd word when you talk about being deployed, like th- think of your best teacher ever. They probably gave a shit about you, which means they loved you. And I've like I've forgotten and and remembered this lesson too many times. But when I'm a great teacher, I actually love my students and I care about them. And that's hard to do when you're in combat and you're teaching somebody with an entirely different cultural language, you know, background and framework. But I saw like that growth happen over uh, over that deployment, I think, as you, you found the people that you loved inside of the support battalion. And um, yeah, so it, moving a tough guy like Mark, all like Burley, and he, he was ripped back then to into <laughs> this, like, kind, caring, loving person was a, a wonderful tra- transition to see.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm a big old teddy bear. Just ask anybody who knows me. Um, well, to, and to that end, I, I will share this. Um, your lessons went well. Uh, because it was eight days before I left the country that the unit I trained saved my actual life. So, yeah, um, it, it, it was lessons that were well learned. But again, thank you yeah. for the uh, for the kind words. Now, speaking of being a teacher, that's where you head next uh, to go download all this this wealth of information, this wealth of knowledge to the next generation of leaders at West Point.
0: Yeah. So uh, this was. An awesome assignment. And it was an awesome assignment, especially for my last assignment in the military. The typical way they do it is, you know, after your company command, they send you off to grad school at a great grad school, and then you're rogered up for a six-year uh, commitment. Uh, but because I, I got my graduate degree in kind of this weird way ahead of time, I was what's known as a direct hire. And so this was December of 2006. And so I showed up there and you know, I went from a place where no one gives a shit if you're a green beret or, you know, what your badges are, your tabs or any of that stuff to like walking around campus is probably one of two green berets, the only one oh, that wow. was like straight from combat. And so my girlfriend at the time who you, who you met, um, uh-huh. uh, uh, and, you know, future fiance, future ex-fiance, future fiance, future ex-fiance. It's a complicated <laughs> story. Um, uh she would always try to like pack my head back into normal size when i'd walk down campus and you know all these cadets so again it, this was 06 so they had all decided to join and go to west point kind of in the height of the war very different decision than what what i made when i decided to do rotc in 1993 and 1994 um but west point was 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 just candy land for me. I mean, you're an hour north of the city. We ended up inviting a ton of people up from the city to come talk. And I know you're in media. I taught a media and politics class. And literally, we had everyone from, you know, Tucker Carlson to Lauren Michaels to Dan Rather to Brian Williams to Roger Ailes to bloggers to, you know, all sorts of folks came up and, you know, helped me teach this class and turned it into an incredible class. I gotta, you know, take a group of cadets on a deployment. I always wanted to go to India. So I took, uh, eight, uh, cadets to India, ended up with an audience with the Dalai Lama. I mean, it's just like ridiculous. The whole thing was just, I, I was so happy, uh, when I was there and, and also that opportunity, as you said, to, to give back. I mean, the cadets were so eager to, you know, to learn. And so if I was ever struggling in some, lecture about the constitution or our institutional powers or anything i'd be like all right guys time out it's time for war stories and then like they would all like just gra- <laughs> gravitate to it but um a bunch of those those former cadets became green berets um i also uh, what, I, I, this isn't trying to humble brag but one of the cadets i mentored and still in very close touch with was uh, Chris Grice, who was one of the first two uh, women to uh, yes. uh, become Ranger, Ranger qualified, and um, and just the opportunity to—I've been mentored well through my career—and the opportunity to like suddenly get thrust into that role—it was something I absolutely loved. It was great.
1: Yeah, I mean, and to that end, um, watching people accomplish something that very few in the military get to accomplish—that's become a Ranger or a Green Beret. Um, and knowing you had a small role in that, I mean, again, it, it, I don't think it's humble bragging. I mean, it's, it's the, the fruits of your labor when they bear out in front of you, it's the same thing as one of your own children. You're, you're, you're more proud than you are bragging about it. Um, but even for, for Kristen Geis or any of your other, uh, folks who are green berets, what's that feeling like watching them get to that level?
0: I, I mean, it's awesome. I mean, we, you know, I'm based in North Carolina, so I've been down to some Green Beret graduations and I see, I remember these like skinny little twerps, you know, cadets who are now like Green Berets. And I mean, they will, you know, they'll, some of them have, you know, said the reason they did this is because they, they saw me. And of course, that's an obligation is I really hope they have a, you know, good experience uh, from it. But you know, Chris in particular. I went to her, you know, change of command where she became the first um, female infantry company commander, and you know, she's such a uh, humble professional and with such a spotlight on her, you know, throughout her her military career. And I think she's using that spotlight for a lot of good. Um, she's you know, she's I, I have a lot to learn from Chris on that. You know, she's she's just very very impressive. Um, so. But yeah, it is, and and like I say, I, I would say to the cadets, and I say to my students, is look, I'm on your team. So if I can help you in a transition, as you said in the intro, I've made a lot of different you know transitions to different careers, different steps. People want to start a company, get in tech, do politics, whatever. I, I, it's one of the the pure joys of being a teacher is to. It's not just that you know semester-long class thing if you if you if you want it to be. So um, yeah, yeah, I love it.
1: Uh, And I think it was her who wrote the article about changing the ACFT standards for women. Um, We did. I mean, just fantastic work. You guys can Google it. And and for the non-military folks listening and watching, you know, uh, if you're not understanding the ACFT and the change from the APFT, it may be a little bit. uh, Uh, Greek to you when you're reading it but obviously for all those in the military uh, and veterans you know what this is all just absolutely amazing work and and incredible point of view in fact the article is saved it's bookmarked on my phone um, because I I just think it's a very lucid viewpoint and no doubt she uh, she she learned some of that from you Um, so after West Point um, you head on to IAVA downloading more information and just continuing to to mold young minds everywhere
0: no, I mean, actually, straight, straight from West Point, I, I immediately moved home to the Ozarks. Oh, that's Archim- right. You ran for office. And, and, yeah, I ran for office. Yeah, Keith, I forget that. about
1: this because I remember, and this is funny, um, I remember you called me up and asked me to do a video for you, and I gladly did it. Now, full disclosure again for everybody, we're on sort of opposite ends of the, of the political spectrum. But I, and, I, I say, and I'll say this, and I think it's super important because especially now, given where we are, because there is a vacuum of leadership in our country right now, and that's the one thing I remember saying on the video. It didn't matter that we came from different backgrounds. It didn't matter that we may have different views. I would have given you my vote simply because I would have followed you anywhere because you are a leader. And at the end of the day, there's always a discussion to be had with leaders among their constituents. And that's the main reason why uh, I would have cast my vote in your name. Granted, I lived in Missouri, couldn't have done it anyway. But right. I, wanted, right. I wanted your audience to know um, that, that your leadership qualities were the best thing about you. Um, and so you run for office, and uh, did, did you walk across the entire state with a flag? If I remember that correctly,
0: <laughs> well, we yeah, running for office is—I uh, mean, it, that was an awesome experience. I mean, it's it's a true startup. You start with like kind of one person and an idea, and then you know you end up uh, you know raising money, building a huge staff and team, and then in my case, when you get smoked uh, in the actual results, the whole thing vaporizes in a you know a matter of a, a couple of days on it. But, um, you know, the, the there were two things that 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 drove me to it is I remember sitting at West Point thinking, uh, you know, I taught American politics. So I understood things like the midterm effect and the uh, the R.D. preference of a specific you know, district. And I was looking at this race, which was in southern, you know, southern Missouri incumbent there. And saying, you know, this looks really hard and this looks almost impossible. And then there was this epiphany of like, quit waiting for this to be easy. Like, if this were easy, anybody would do it. And there'd be a line of 50 people out the door, you know, uh, doing it. But just get in there, surround yourself by the best people possible, work really hard. And, you know, you miss every shot you, you, you don't take. But to your point on the walking across, the second epiphany was there's a playbook to how you run for Congress and money is a core component of it. I don't begrudge that. It's just a, you know, a factor of politics and we were successful at it, but this was a, this was a real, uh, you know, rough cycle. And so early on, we realized, Hey, why am I running like a, I don't know, a 60 year old state Senator with uh, like a standard playbook? Why don't I instead run as like a boot wearing tobacco chewing Truck driving, you know, Green Beret, fresh out of out of the military, and so we did a lot of things that maybe look like stunts, but in fact were great. One of one of which was we we I would work kind of dirty jobs in all of the 28 counties, and this is one of the poorest districts in America. But that's how I became actually knowledgeable about this whole thing of politics, which is you know when you change tires with somebody, not for a photo op. For like ten minutes, but like the whole day, you know that's when they open up about their stories, their challenges, the challenges of healthcare, their questions about Afghanistan, all those things like come out after that time. Um, and then yes, there is something called the hundred mile yard sale in uh, southern uh, Missouri, and so we marched the entire hundred miles over a period of uh, four days. Um, uh, you know, meeting voters, talking and talking with folks, so i running running for office while it is a it was a huge inflection point uh for me i mean I met my wife most most notably uh, through that but um you know to, to there, there's there, there's a lot of division in in today's politics and and to have the opportunity to like channels people's hopes and dreams and aspirations for something better was was a real honor and you can draw not a dotted line, but a dash line or or solid line from running that race, running well, and then being offered, you know, the C level job at the VA uh, shortly thereafter. Um, and, and, and have that opportunity to start implementing uh, the things that, you know, I wanted to see government do better.
1: Yeah. Um, and you know, of all the things that, you know, you just mentioned and the things that you take from running for office, um, was there any part about it that you made you regret doing it at all? Well, other than losing, so it, I guess.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not um, winning. It's a, it, it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, you know, you're not paid, right. you know, so I like went into debt immediately out of getting out, out of the military. And it's crazy. Cause you're, you know, raising millions of dollars and paying all the rest of your staff, and you know, not paying, paying yourself. So there was a financial hit. Um, and, you know, back to that epiphany of when you get in immediately, like you feel like you're getting pulled a lot of different ways that aren't you. And the best advice I got is just like run you, be yourself. So, Mark, when you run, I expect like, you know, all sorts of like, you know, a Mark version of the campaign because, you know, otherwise you're you're trying to be somebody that you're not. And my biggest fear was not running and losing, which ultimately happened. Um, I thought I was going to win. Like, like we, we all thought, uh, you know, I was going to win and then that did not happen. But my biggest fear was running and losing myself in that process. And so back to this idea of like surrounding yourself with great people, I had a phenomenal team. One of my closest friends uh, was my campaign manager, a a, political neophyte just like me, but Navy vet, uh, Harvard Business School, and I lured him out of McKinsey to come, you know, run my campaign. And he was like, he was my asthma check. Uh, he and uh, two or three other core staff members when it's like, Tommy, this doesn't sound like you. Like, this is not you. You need to be you on this. And if voters don't like it, which they didn't, they can, they can, they can not vote uh, for you. But I, I see a lot of people that are interested in politics. They get into politics and, and it can be a bad outcome. I mean, it's combat. It's, uh, you know, people are coming at you from the, from the very beginning, but people that don't know who they are and get swayed into positions or saying stuff that they don't believe. Um, and people that just don't plan and prep for this, it's just like going on a deployment. Like there are, there are SOPs and rules and things that you either know, or you figure out on your way. And, And, you know, one thing I always try to do um, before my deployments is learn the language, understand the geography, do all that, you know, uh, understand your operational environment. So there's certainly people that I think run and like haven't aren't executing on a plan or they hear somebody promise, hey, if you if you get in this race, we're going to give you a million dollars or we're going to support you all the way. We took the approach of, like there's no helicopter coming to save us. Like we have to save ourselves. And if somebody helps us along the way, that's fantastic. But it allowed us not, you know, to come to the end of, end of it, know that we left everything on the table and, you know, leave our supporters and the, the people that we got to know with a strong impression of hey, this was an exceptionally well run campaign. It was just terrible timing in a terrible district.
1: Right. Um is there a sense like what's the sense of loss after something that big is it like a death a divorce i mean how down are
0: you after the loss well it is it's rapid for one so like i mean you you know when we wanted to pay our camp we did pay our campaign staff through the end of the year but usually these things just dissolve in the matter of like 24 or 48 hours so you go into you know all this attention all this focus and so certainly the amount of energy changed. Um, I oh. went to, uh, southern Mexico for about a month and like d- didn't wear a shirt, uh, <laughs> drank a lot of like pina carlotta's coronas, fished. And I just didn't want to ask anybody for anything. Uh, when I came out of that, like you're constantly asking people for support, for yeah. money, for help, for all that. Um, but then I came out of that with uh, like a real clear perspective, which is, Running a campaign well, you end up meeting like 20 lifetimes of people and, you know, people that have helped me in every step along the way since then. And, and, and namely, my wife, uh, you know, is uh, who I met uh, uh, during the campaign. So like without that experience and without, frankly, taking that big ass risk, like, you know, it kind of accelerated an intense period of my life. And that, that's clearly an inflection point. So if any of your listeners are thinking about it, uh, there's a number of programs out there that help veterans, you know, think about this transition and they should get in the arena. Look, you know, the, 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 the quote on my wall is the Teddy Roosevelt quote of man, man in the arena and getting that blood and knowing victory or defeat is something I've tried to uh, live by and. You don't get it by sitting on the sidelines waiting for it to be easy hey amen 100% and uh,
1: everybody should live by that quote in fact a lot of football yeah. coaches I know have used that quote um, in covering sports and everything else they, they use it in reference to the media often because yeah.
0: when are, are, we are when expect- are you gonna run mark come on I mean like I yeah. mean look, honestly
1: it's I've had discussions about it I've, I've had legitimate discussions about it um, with people it is it is a goal of mine um, it's mm-hmm. it's on the radar screen as you mentioned a lot of it is about timing. Um, A lot of it is about, you know, uh, where you are in your family life. It's a lot easier to do when you're a single man um, and you don't have responsibilities to anybody else other than yourself. And yes, you can incur a lot of debt, but when you have a lot of churins at home, um, it changes the game and you need the support of, of, of a, of a spouse and and a wife and and kids and everything else, because you're essentially gone for at least a year straight. I mean, it's, it's it's, it's another version of a deployment and you have to understand that going and everybody's got to be bought in on it. Um, but yes, I mean, it, it is absolutely a goal of mine. It's something I want to do. Uh, I think, you know, me, um, I am, I am best served in leadership positions when I can serve others. Um, you know, I, I it's where I feel most comfortable. I've never been a staff guy. I've always been a, more of a yeah. command guy. Uh, I like to be where the rubber meets the road. So, um, I'll keep it posted on it. I'm sure we'll have a long conversation about the do's and don'ts. I've had her enter, enter into this sort of thing, but I, I, I would like to think, Um, I do it on the earlier side of 50 than on the later side of 50. Um, but I would say this too. And and here's the one thing I would, you know, if I were to run and you know, the old adage in in elections is it's not hard to win the first one. It's hard to win the second one, right? Mm. Anybody can win one election. It's winning the second one. That's really, really tough. Well, yeah, Yeah. look at the audience I'm talking to. I apologize. (laughs) But, um, no, it's, it, you know. I don't, I'll never understand career politicians in the same spot over and over again. Like, I think, you know, me, like I have to be on a constant ascent because either you're growing or you're dying. There's not a third direction. And, and whatever the job is, I wouldn't commit to doing it for one, maybe two terms. And then I'd get out and I'd go do something else because I believe everything has to move forward. And the only only thing that moves forward is when new people and fresh blood get into, get into positions. Um, the really successful military units, don't stay successful and don't get the notoriety over years because one person was the same person for 10 years. They get a whole variety Mm -hmm. of different commanders and leaders who cycle their way through and buy into a certain mentality and, and, and all that. So, um, yeah, I I think I would do it and, and maybe stay one or two terms. I mean, of course, I'm totally speaking with delusions of grandeur, but, you know, Mm -hmm. and then get out and do something else much like you did, you know, even though you didn't win, I would want it to springboard me into something where, where I can make a positive effect somewhere else if that makes yeah.
0: sense. Yeah, it, it does. And, and you know, I, for, for what it's worth, I'd, I'd, I'd encourage you to look at the executive branch. So many folks, you know, including myself, you know, start off and say, I'm going to run for office and I'm going to run for the legislature. Uh, you got to really understand what the legislature does. I mean, you know, it creates policy. So like if you love like student government and Robert's Rules of Order and, you know, this kind of constant when i got to dc i was definitely a neophyte and somebody explained it to me like this congress is a fixed mindset there are 435 seats you only gain by taking you're not going to create like five new seats or or anything like that so it's a fixed mindset and it's very much in that d versus r you know battle over and over again then they've delegated so much power and authority to the executive branch where you have, you know, bureaucrats, yes, but then our model also has this pretty heavy layer of political appointees that come in. And there, the power is awesome. It's awesome. And there is an imperative to execute. You actually have clients that are waiting for you, veterans in my case, to say, Hey, I'd like it to be easier to get these benefits or understand what these laws that have been passed, that, like actually affect my daily life. And so my experience at the VA was was awesome in that that fact. It, it, it taught me like I chose the wrong office you know, to uh, to run for. I really should have been thinking on the on the executive branch because there's I mean just the word executive is action oriented. And um, so for what it's worth, Mark, I. I Take a look at the executive branch before you take a look at Congress. As
1: I said, I've I've never been much of a staff guy. I'm I'm much more of a uh, command role type deal. It's better where I am. All right. uh, Back to you now that we've we've digressed again. Um, Just real quick, uh, your time at IAVA. um, Obviously, again, this comes right after the election, but uh, one of the more noted veterans organizations out there. um, And What's your role as the advisor?
0: Yeah, so, you know, Paul Rykoff had, uh, actually had come and, and spoken to in my class at West Point. We got to know each other. For those of you that know Paul, he is an absolute, know well. you know, force of nature yep. and, uh, and a close friend of mine. So after I'd uh, shown my, uh, proclivity to be able to raise funds in a very difficult environment, Paul asked me to, you know, come in and, you know, look at their fundraising and, and their approach to that. And, uh, you know, he's since moved on and transitioned after, you know, at least a decade as as IABA's, uh director on that. But that was great to, you know, kind of this realization of, OK, I, I could have gotten elected and helped veterans that way. Let me see what one of the premier nonprofits out there and, and that approach, um, you know, uh, how they approach uh, influencing uh, veterans lives for the better. So that was, that was fairly, you know, short while I was also trying to, you know, wrap up my graduate studies. But, uh, I will always be grateful, uh, for Paul because, you know, when you lose an election, there's this common sense of like all the opportunities are right there, but it's still entrepreneur. You got to kind of make, make your own way right out. It's not like a bunch of people are saying, Hey, I want you to run my private jet company or, you know, something, you know, like that, uh, right out of an election.
1: Right, uh, and oh, by the way, Paul, a former guest on there has a Ground, you can just Google uh-huh. it and find out. He, you'll hear his story. But as a matter of fact, I just spoke to him yesterday. He was on my radio show this morning. So, oh, um, great, yeah, so great. Uh, little, little symmetry there. Okay, on to the VA, um, mm-hmm. which now, if I remember correctly, I'm trying to do the um, the math on Shinseki was the director at the time, correct? When you got hired, yeah. There?
0: That's right. So I started, you know, I had this brief, brief stint in management consulting uh, for about nine months while I was going through the confirmation. It was confirmed in August of uh, twenty twelve. By the way, and how nerve wracking
1: is that waiting for confirmation?
0: Well, it's it's just a you know I've I've got an end of one of the process you know on this, but you know I, I think at the time I was the youngest Senate confirmed assistant secretary or or something like that. Luckily, I had some good friends that I made through the campaign. So people on the Hill that could, you know, help champion and and pull that through. The thing that is not obvious about it is getting the White House to decide on you, uh, you know, for this position. So, you know, that's how it flows is the president, you know, has all these different appointments. And that's its own really strange influence operation is like who ultimately makes this decision uh, that, you know they're making lots of decisions out of the White House. So you know how does this bubble up? How does this you know become somewhat urgent? And you know a lot of these folks are D.C. operators. You know they are in a law firm in D.C. They're fine. Just be, simply being considered helps. You know helps a brand. You know of course a lot of them you know want to serve and have, have strive for that one position. And here I was a total like young outsider. And you gotta imagine there were like twelve people who had always wanted to be this assistant secretary. Were probably you know much more qualified than me. Um, but you know to the, you know uh, President Obama's and and uh, Secretary Shinseki's credit, I, I think they said let's take a risk on this guy uh, who's young, uh, but clearly knows the veteran experience. You know at that point, you know is Doctor Sowers, because of the post nine eleven GI Bill, my home th- loan was through the VA, my health care was through the VA. And I think they liked the idea of having, you know, somebody that actually understood vets because they were, they, they were a vet, understood the benefits because they used the benefits, uh, you know, to come into that role. So once that happened and, and it, it went over to uh, the Senate, it actually moved very, very quickly through the Senate and, you know, prepping for Senate confirmation. I mean, I think I had a book about that big, uh, just, you know, reference and, and study material on it. But it was very polite, went very well. And, you know, then, boom, you're you're confirmed. And I was at McKinsey on a project in Mexico and they're like, we need you in a week. And so we moved from San Francisco to D.C. in about a week.
1: Wow. Um, and so the job, I mean, it's, it's a lengthy title, Assistant Secretary of Public and Intergovernmental Affairs, What's the basic job description?
0: So the, the core of it is, you know, you are the you know, public affairs side of it. So you, you know, feel free to Google my you know, TV appearances when I was trying to explain, you know, our terrible disability claims backlog. And that was just, you know, um, so one was just simply explaining the VA is the easiest way to, <laughs> you know, to, to say it. It's the
1: because easiest way to say it, but the hardest thing to do.
0: Oh, it's so hard. And I mean, you know, so it is everything from like our website would like feature what's Secretary Shinseki like talking to a group of vets. And I'm like, nobody's coming to the website to see that stuff. They're coming because they served and would like to know and understand their benefits. So let's change the entire website to orient to the customer and away from like the standard kind of D.C., you know, website on it. The intergovernmental affairs was interesting because uh, it was the relationships between the VA and all the states and the tribes and the municipalities. But the thing I was most passionate about is, you know, I was coming straight from a consultant background, you know, business background. And my central question was, hey, it's clear when people get into the VA and use the VA, like their lives are better on any metric you know, greater chance of being homeowners, greater chance of having a college degree, less chance for suicide, less chance for mental health problems, all that stuff, if they can get in. And so I asked the question, we had about 8 million veterans that are utilizing one of our services. And in one of my first meeting, I remember I asked, so is 8 million a good number? Are we killing it right now? Or, you know, are, are we... Way underperforming. And should all the veterans be utilizing, you know, utilize, of the 22 million be utilizing uh, our benefits? So I asked, like, well, do they know about their benefits? And we surveyed vets and it turned out about 40 percent utilized one of the benefits. And then we, we, when we asked vets, what do you know about your benefits? About 40 percent said they know something about their benefits and 60 percent knew nothing about their benefits. And so that interesting problem of how do you communicate effectively to veterans about the benefits that they've earned through their service? And you, you know, it's, this is, this is tough communication because it's multi-generational. It's people that served in peacetime don't, a lot of them don't consider themselves veterans or they think veterans is just combat veterans. Um, you know, having, ha- having a strategy on that. And so that's where I focus the bulk of my effort. Uh, it was ultimately my biggest failure uh, in government We, uh, I'll send you the ad campaign that we shot through the Ad Council that was powerful and impactful and encouraged people to know and understand their benefits um, but when that uh, after spending taxpayer dollars on it getting it all ready, having it set in the queue and then uh, I failed to be able to get it green lit I'm like, you know, I can't I can't have a job where I'm being told not to tell veterans about their benefits. Um, Mm. So, uh, so anyway, that was, sorry, that was the VA secretary in a, in a nutshell. Sorry for the, uh, the little diatribe there. No. And
1: and, I uh, mean, I I hate to ask a sore question because um, it was ultimately Shinseki. The only real scandal of the Obama presidency was the VA scandal with Shinseki at the top of it. um, And and things that went wrong there. I mean, Care to share any, shed any light on that? I mean, do you have any, like, not inside info is not the right term, but, I mean, you know, were you sort of watching all those dominoes fall?
0: Well, so I left in April of 2014, and then, mm-hmm. that, you know, the scandal broke, I think, about three weeks later, and then Shin, uh, uh, Secretary Shinseki was, you know, removed from office like a month later. And, look, Secretary Shinseki is an amazing American. He has an incredible story, incredible veteran. Um, but, uh, you know, and the challenge of running the VA, like, let's not underestimate this. Like veterans are a very prickly group and providing healthcare to veterans, healthcare to anybody is tough. You know, right now, Duke hospital, you know, somebody is dying in there because of negligence on the part of an administrator or a doctor or any of that. It happens a lot in hospitals. When it happens in a VA hospital, that is the government killing a veteran. Uh, you know, so, so his, his task and his responsibility, and he inherited a ton of challenges on the disability, you know, claims backlog that is, you know, you know, that has since been solved, but you know, his, I, you know, I, I think if he, he were on one of the challenges of it is he grew up in a military that the press was kind of the enemy. Right. And like, and this is, you know, really before social media and all that, like you've got to be out there engaging and communicating over and over and over again. And I think there was some hesitancy and, you know, uh, even in the, the, the Phoenix scandal, getting out in front of it and saying, here's what we know. We're trying our best. We'll be back to you tomorrow. And then, like, do that. I think people can understand that and get that. But when it's radio silence from government and like this is discovery through the press, yeah, uh, it just didn't. end well, so, yeah, you know, it's it's a it's a challenging job. It is a super challenging job to uh, to run the VA. I mean, largest integrated healthcare system in America, one of the largest home loan programs in America, largest education benefit in America. And it, when it doesn't work like cl- clockwork, you're going to hear about it. you're yeah. going to hear about
1: it. Big fan of the, uh, the home loan stuff. Uh, still working. Through uh, my benefits portion. Uh, I'm actually in the process of going back now and applying for more after multiple surgeries and uh, a whole bunch of other things that have just sort of caught up with me over the last, oh, God, uh, decade now. So um, Mm -hmm. after my first go-round and I got my disability and everything else, I'm I'm going back for more. I I know the process, though, so I – my level of patience has probably grown <laughs> a little bit right. more than what it was right. the first time around. Is I got a monthly letter reminding you, hey, we got your case. We're just still thinking about it. Nineteen months later, finally, uh, something came in the mail, a big packet. It's like uh, waiting for your college admissions packet to finally show up, except it took you know a year and a half. So yeah. anyway, uh, we digress. Yeah. Uh, now you're going back to Duke. And I know you love Duke because – the one thing you sent me was a Duke t-shirt, and I still have it. I don't know why I've never thrown it <laughs> out. I'm not a Duke fan. Yeah. Um, but because of it came from you, I know you love Dukes. So now,
0: why aren't you a Duke fan? I'm always I'm always curious about it. Well, like,
1: <sighs> I don't know, because I'm from I New mean, York. Like, you know, North yeah. Carolina, and New York, like, you know, may as well be a different country, if you ask me. I uh, hear mm. the Outer Banks is beautiful. I've only driven through North Carolina never stopped for a visit. Uh, actually, let me rephrase that. I did. I called a basketball game at Duke once, and I think I – text you or, or sent you a screenshot but I was at Cameron mm-hmm. Indoor and I called a basketball game uh, from there when I was doing basketball games for my alma mater Loyola they played Duke and I got to call a basketball game inside Cameron Indoor so I did stay for that but um, it's look it's an amazing university um, yeah. it, it's one of the best in the country um, obviously you got to be really really sharp to go there as you were but what's it like going back to teach your alma mater
0: well so uh, in I, I it, it felt great because you know dc was such a high pressure you know job and constantly on i think i went to like 40 you know 43 states was gone a lot and then the college professor gig you know is is a pretty sweet gig you know <laughs> you know, you know teachers you know, teach, teach a couple of classes you know you're done tuesday at two your next class is you know thursday at you know at, at one you're done at two and then we'll see you next tuesday so i mean the it was a really, you know, sharp shift between being constantly on. And, you know, that, that's when, uh, my wife was pregnant with our, with our first daughter, we were renovating a home. And it was just kind of a good opportunity to like similar to going to Mexico of, of just kind of like an opportunity to decompress. Uh, the Duke students are great. Um, you know, similar, not all, no, I haven't produced many green berets, uh, out of, uh, out of the Duke students, but, uh, you know, the chance to lead and, and mentor them and, and be involved on campus was great. I mean, it was a little disconcerting. You know, you, you come back into a classroom where you took a class however many years ago and now, now you're the professor, uh, is a, is a little bit odd, but it's, it's a great, and you should spend some more time in North Carolina because, uh, the, it's a great state and that area in particular, the research triangle is just vibrant, growing, uh, you know, fantastic, uh, place to be. So, But
1: Asheville is fantastic. Again, the Outer Banks. And guess what? North Carolina has something I love that Georgia doesn't legalized sports betting. So, uh, you know, and they got plenty of casinos in North Carolina. They got Harris Cherokee there. Plenty of casinos in North Carolina. Good for you guys. It's like millions in revenue every year just because people like me exist who like to place the occasional wager from time to time.
0: I I didn't know that. I, I I don't bet on sports, but uh There's casino if, gambling too. I, you if, want to sit down at the blackjack table? We can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's not you, Tommy, trust me, I know. No, no, no. No, <laughs> I I actually I've actually uh over one of the COVID things or pre-COVID, I ended up in this poker group with a bunch of Duke Quants, former World Series of Poker stuff, and so I love that now. I okay. mean, that well, is a, that's a hell of a game.
1: Well, then let, let's do that. I I'll, I'll see you I'll see you in the uh, in the mountains of North Carolina. Uh, for, for, for a little bit of poker action. Let's all definitively all do that. Right. Let's
0: um, make it happen.
1: So after there, you go to, you found your own real estate company. And I remember when you started pumping this and I'm like, what is this all about? Because I, I think I was an adult enough at that point in time to buy a house. Um, I feel mm-hmm. like I was. You know, I haven't really grown up until recently, as you know. But um, hmm. I, was a la- I was a late bloomer, Tommy. Uh, so it's, it's called Golden Key and it's a real estate tech company. So explain that whole thing.
0: Yeah. So, I, you know, I come from a family of entrepreneurs and always wanted to start my own company. always had these, you know, I was one of those guys in the army who was always like, I'll have this little side hustle on the side and explore this stuff. Um, you know, and, and got some business experience, at least at the corporate level, but, you know, really great companies start with a core problem that you understand and you feel. And for me, when we were moving from Washington, DC to Duke, I had like most of us, we had like looked online and found the homes that we wanted to see. And then, you know, I was sitting outside of this home and I'm like, I don't want to call a real estate agent just to let me in. I've already done the work. I just need to see the home. And it was a vacant home. So I ended up breaking into the home and so that we could see it, you know, and, you know, get a uh, it was up for auction. So get a bid on it. Uh, and then uh, one of my uh, one of my cousins is a very successful a real estate agent. And we started talking about it more about how the model doesn't work great for customers because you end up hiring a real estate agent, paying them a, a load of commission, uh, and you pay on both sides, whether you're buying or selling. You're, you're either paying 6% more for the house or writing 6% uh, typically to real estate agents. And it's like, well, that's the only model that that's really out there. What about does this work for real estate agents? And it turns out it works incredibly well for some top real estate agents. I mean, they, they Hoover it up they' you know, the established ones, but there's 1.8 million real people with real estate licenses that can do the job, can show you the home, can write the offer, can do all those things. They're just not the fully established advertised real estate agents. So they're not as great at, at business development. So what our platform allowed you to do is kind of Uber, like, allow you to order the real estate services that you need like I want to see 328 Main tomorrow at noon that goes out to a bunch of real estate agents if they want it they grab it and then they let you in and show you show you the home and you just as the customer just pay for the services and then we pay the the agents themselves and then when you buy the home or sell the home you don't pay commission so you get all that money back to you and you know this is the largest investment for for most people out there and if you use agents to when you both buy and sell sell your home, you're typically losing forty seven percent of your gain on uh, on a home, uh, and that's just going away for fees. So we ended up you know raising uh, venture capital. Lowe's was one of our larger larger investors on this, and it was just an incredible growth experience for me. I was super slow; it sped me up a ton. Learned a ton more about tech, but a ton more about raising and venture capital. Um, and it was a great experience. And so that was acquired, uh, three, uh, yeah, a little more than three years ago. And, um, so, you know, wasn't always passionate about real estate and that was part of the acquisition. It's like, Hey, I, I don't want to do this for the next, you know, you know, 10 years or so. Um, but you know, again, great team, great experience, great opportunity to, you know, learn and grow through that.
1: And, and now finally, uh, the current role. Uh, you're flying private jets. You're the president of Fly <laughs> Exclusive. Uh, is this now? This isn't your company, is it? You're working for another individual.
0: No, I, I this. Uh, it, it, there was an interim step of going back and working uh, DOD, but there's been too many steps. But uh, <laughs> I started working with this company about a year ago, and it's the you know fifth or fourth largest private jet operator in uh, in the United States. And it's based in Kinston, North Carolina, which is a town of about 20,000, similar in size and kind of composition as my hometown. And a lot of towns in rural America are facing the exact same challenges, which is there's very little growing there. And, and, you know, it's getting older. Manufacturing has gone away. Agriculture is under significant pressure. And what this founder and uh, the CEO have created here is, is just truly remarkable. It is. Started with, you know, five people and two jets in about uh, 2015. It's now 75 jets, 500 people, quarter billion dollars of revenue and growing, you know, dramatically. So um, and, you know, out of Kinston, North Carolina, providing this luxury service. You know, my mom was asking, I was trying to explain to my mom. And she's like, oh, it's like if a Rolls Royce factory opened up in our, you know, my hometown in the Ozarks. And I'm like, no, it's like if a Rolls Royce competitor opened up a, a factory there. So um, I love the people, the founders got an, a, a huge vision of this. And a big part of that vision is how do we build something that's enduring? How do we build something that the kids and the children of the employees that work here can aspire and work, you know, for this, uh, for this company and it's private jets, which is pretty cool too. So, you know, um, there are worse so, ways
1: to fly from what I understand. I don't know yeah, how good I, it is to fly that way because I've never done it, but there are worse ways.
0: It is, uh, I, you know, I, it's not really in my price uh, bracket, but I do get <laughs> access every now and then, uh, to it and it's, it's pretty damn addictive. So, you know, I've got four little kids I, and I, I'm, I'm always, I've seen the pictures of the boys, but you've got, uh, three more now. Is that right? Five, two, two more. Yeah. Five total. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, it is, uh, traveling with kids is like which level of hell, am I going to enter (laughs) on this, on this trip? And I mean, I've had my now five-year-old at one point in Midway stripped down entirely naked. Nice. And like, I'm just like, what, what are we doing here, Catherine? Um, so, uh, so anyway, um, I haven't taken the family on, on one of these trips, but I'm excited to do it and, and not, uh, and have it be easy as opposed to the current challenge. Now that you've
1: kind of done all this, I mean, again, it's just such an extensive resume. Um, Harken back to your military career, whether it's military in general or being a Green Beret. Is there a skill that you have been able to apply to every part of your career or something that you've always taken with you as as a foundation?
0: Well, I think there's. and, And this is more about kind of my approach in the in the military is, you know, there's. You move around a lot and I've, I've definitely seen, you know, people that move around, they come in and they put their hands on their, on their hips and say, okay, I'm in charge now. Here, here's the way it's going to be. And I, I learned humility very early on, on this. I like, I, I remember the first time I got up in front of my, uh, platoon as a, as a engineer, I asked my platoon sergeant, you know, what, what should I say? And he, and he said, no one ever complained about a short speech from an officer. So, um, you know, <laughs> you know, and I had all these grand things that I was going to say about, you know, my vision and all that stuff, but it's less about like your vision and you're like sitting up on the, on the mountaintop and delivering the, you know, tablets to the masses on this. So, you know, I've come into this job exceptionally humble. I tell people, you know, I've got, you know, 12 months of part-time experience in private aviation as I'm talking to somebody who's dedicated their entire life to this industry. So, you know, coming in and listening and learning and, you know, sure, I've got a ton of ideas that that I see and I'm like, wow, why why can't we do this? But, you know, the the first uh, special forces imperative is understand your operational environment, is that you don't just show up and say this is how it's going to be. And um, certainly there were special forces officers that did that. But the successful ones that were my mentors were the ones that like really deeply understood this. So, I mean, I'm on a huge learning curve right now about this industry, the people, the individuals, the the challenges, all that. And that's been the same, whether it's politics or coming into government. And any time I've strayed from that and come in and said, OK, here's my agenda. Here's what I'm going to get done. I don't have a lot of time. It, it, it's never really worked well.
1: I should have asked you this before because you did get out after 11 years. But I mean, you know, how did you know it was time? I mean, look, I, I, I say this again as your friend. I mean, clearly, from the moment I met you, I knew that there was a different path that you were going to be on than most military folks, um, mm-hmm. just because I knew your skill set and your capabilities. were, And I hate to say this because it almost sounds like I'm taking a dump on the military, but it's you were just well beyond of what the military requires. You know, your mental capacity mm-hmm. is much bigger than what most of the military is is worthy of, if that makes any sense um so from that standpoint how did you know it was time to go and get out and and is there anything you miss about it
0: well i mean i'll challenge some of the things you said there. i certainly met a a lot of people much smarter than me in the the military i I, you know mark i was i I never was a good fit for the military and i knew that like from the first day of ROTC. i ever my dad asked me (laughs) like like, my dad asked me how to go and i'm like well you know I, i i like it but i don't like all this like Taking orders stuff. And my dad was like, <laughs> I don't know how long this is going to work for you, son. Um, so when I was kind of left alone in the military, when I was at West Point, when I was on Green Beret tours, when I'm in the Russian sector, you know, I, I, I thrived in the military. And as soon as I got like the, the heavy thumb put down on me, it was like, this is, this is not my place. Um, you know, I always, the thing I loved about the military was in my time in the army was, you know, at a very young age, you know, you're 22, 23, and you're leading a platoon in Kosovo. You're 26. You're leading a green beret team, uh, in Iraq and you're 28, 29. And you're, you know, a professor at an elite institution. And then I just kind of played the tape forward. Um, of there was a lot I wanted to do that. I didn't want to wait until I was 42 or 44. And, and I, I just say, i would like, for everyone that wants to stay in the military, that's fantastic and that's great, and I there's no begrudging. But to your point earlier on politics, it'd be damn impossible for me to run for office right now. Sorry about that. Um, you know, I've got four little kids now. I'm very glad I got out and took like big risks immediately, uh, and you know they they didn't all uh, pan out, but they they definitely made me better uh, because of it. So um, what I miss from it. I try to rebuild everywhere I go, which is, you know, a sense of camaraderie, a common mission, your small part and, and something bigger. So it's not that I don't miss it, but I replicate it wherever I go.
1: Yeah. Um, and that's what has been great about the guard for me. I joke around, you know, the guard, uh, I, I get to date the army. I don't have to marry it, you know, um, right. It, it, right. it allows me the flexibility and look, I, I mean, I I was never long for the act of duty. I knew that. Much like you, I just knew it was sort of a square peg in a round hole mentality. Um, but the guard has been very good to me. Um, it's given me uh, a sense of direction. It's afforded me opportunities to do things that I would have never done otherwise. And it's allowed me to continue to serve. And I think that has grounded me and kept me humble. And I think it's it's um, taught me a lot of valuable lessons in life. So I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that I'm still able to serve after 22 years um, and, and, and able to do it. But I, I think in that sense, you and I, um, we're we're kindred spirits and why we got along so well and why we're able to understand each other because our minds worked at just a, a little bit of a different uh a, a different cycle if you will or a different level
0: um yeah i'm i'm thrilled i'm thrilled that you stayed in and stayed active on it and you know it was it, it was nice to see a lot of my peers um you know at different levels on that just some of the best people that i've ever met who like chose to stay in chose to continue to serve or go into the reserve or national guard because we need it you know we need we we need the best and brightest uh in there so um uh, i'm thrilled that you've, you've you've stuck in
1: yeah i got one more ceremony left there tommy one okay. more
0: uh just, got it.
1: Got, got, no i gotta get that gotta get that six pinned on and uh Who knows? Uh, yeah, it's funny. I I don't, I don't know how much longer I want to do this. Um, just because I think life is taking over at this point. Um, you know, and I see the operational tempo of which they're using the guard. And and part of it to me is a, a little bit alarming. Um, the guard, Mm -hmm. the guard has become a very convenient toy for 50 governors of 50 States, um, that sometimes I feel like Mm -hmm. it's misappropriated, um, for what it's designed to do. Um, but again, you know, uh, I, I do want to, I do want to get that one, get that Eagle just for a day, even if it's only for a day yeah. and say that I did it. And, um, because honestly, you know, when you and I were together in Iraq, I, I would have never dreamed it was possible. I, I would have never even thought I would have lasted that long. Um, and, and I, I say this on their podcast routinely, the army always has a funny way of putting you where you're supposed to be. I mean, I would, I had hit my eight years after that deployment, I think a year after that deployment, and I was going to get out. But a, yeah. a couple of dominoes fell, and, and they offered me a position and said, hey, you'll make 4 and, and next thing you know, I never look back. And, and another, you know, what is it, 14 years later now, uh, I'm still hanging around.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, full bird, Colonel Mark is in. A, I, yeah. I, I love it. I love it. It, it. it was uh, – <laughs> who would have ever thought?
1: Uh, just some, yeah. some final notes here um, for, you know <sighs> – Being a Green Beret, um, while it suited you, um, you know, and clearly it's not for everybody, but when you talk about the characteristics of what make a good Green Beret, what are they for you?
0: Well, so I'm I'm certainly not an expert on all of them. I mean, the one thing about Green Berets is you you, kind of just operate with your team. And, you know, you occasionally know the other people in your company and, and, you know, aside from training, probably, you know, nobody else. Um, the thing they test on in the Q course is a powerful skill and it's a rare skill, which is they're testing you for your ability to handle uncertainty. So, you know, Ranger school, I would know, okay, well, Florida phase, I'm going to be out, you know, for 10 days or, you know, the mountain phase one or phase two, like you could know all that stuff and you knew how to get your go. And when I went through, they actually gave you feedback immediately of whether you got your go or not. And, you know, in, in Green Beret training, it's actually not as physically taxing uh, as like winter Ranger school, but th- they're testing your mind. They're testing like can you operate without any feedback? Your next event is a run. You go off running. Can you pace yourself and meet yourself for the for the long haul? Because that's the most critical skill is you can't have somebody that gets in an uncertain environment, which happens a lot in, in Green Berets and, and their mission, and then quits or says, I need more guidance or, or, or all that. And that capacity to work in an, uh, like in an area of uncertainty is something that, you know, is tested for, but like is it it proves itself out, uh, especially given given that unique mission. And, you know, not to not to dog any other special operations units that are out there. But, you know, this idea of humble professionals really matters is, you know, each Green Beret is trained in a specific skill set. And they are expected to be professionals and master that domain, whether that's engineering or medic or communications or whatever. But the only way anything gets done is if they can work well with each other and and critically work well by, with and through an indigenous force. And, you know, you've got to be able to speak their language, know their culture, not come in and just be like, OK, here's big America's here. Let me show you everything about how, how we get this done. So, you know, there's a, uh, there's this thing be- between your ears of your ability to handle uncertainty and still operate. And then there's just this kind of approach with your heart of, of being humble and being able, you know, to listen. I'm sure there's wide disagreement with, with me on that. And others would be like, you got to be this badass, you know, and, and take charge sort of person. But that, that wasn't my approach. And it wasn't, uh, who I admired in the Green Berets.
1: You've said that humble professional thing several times. Since you and I were deployed together um, and, you know, the the Green Beret world I was exposed to and the Green Beret world you grew up into was still relatively under cloak and secrecy. Um, and now it's as common as, as anything you can imagine. Um, you know, in our parents' generation, it was John Wayne when you talked about the Green Berets, and that was about it. But now mm-hmm. it's every movie that's ever made. Um, and we, we, we know what they do. We kind of know who... The, not necessarily know who they are, but their capabilities and skill sets and everything else—is that a bad thing?
0: Well, I I I'd, I'd challenge that a little bit. I think you're confusing Navy SEALs with Green Berets. I mean, there's always this story about um, uh, I, I got a dog on a SEAL. Um, you know, there's this thing of like what happens when di- different parts of the military encounter is a snake, and you know, artillery, you know, you know, fire for effect, and all that. Mm-hmm. But, And Navy SEALs, you know, expend their primary and secondary uh, weapon systems, withdraw to the boat, and write the screenplay about their encounter with the uh, with the snake. So, um, you know, I I think I've actually admired uh, how the Green Beret as a community have have not written a thousand books and a thousand screenplays and said, "Look at me, look at us, look at." You know, certainly the stories are there. But uh, it's it's definitely part of our of our ethos on this. But, you know, um, there's uh, and it's one of the differences, you know, internally, there's all these kind of, you know, measuring contests between these different special operations yes. units. We have a very different mission than the SEALs or the Rangers. Oh, or there's measuring so. contests
1: between fifth group and 10th group and third group and seventh. Oh, I'm yeah. Really
0: kidding. Yeah, totally. Totally. <laughs> yeah.
1: So, uh, but again, it's just, you know, uh, I'm always curious on the perspective Uh, and, and, you know, I think, you know, this, I mean, I I was super thankful for my experience. Um, It made me into the leader I am today. Uh, I I would have never um, had a military career after it. If I had probably done something else, I I probably like you would have went on to do something different, but um, it's, it's an experience that has stuck with me. And, and even to this day, 22 years, it's, it's been the sole best part of my entire military career it, it is at the top yeah. of it those those 15 months um between three different you know sf battalions that i was there between fifth and tenth group was uh was some of the some of the the most pivotal days of my entire life and inshallah as they say uh, i made it out uh, for the most part in one piece and and uh, i take that experience with me and you know with that I, I mean typically we spend a lot of time talking about combat but uh, itself but um when it comes to your story tommy there's just there's so many layers to it there's so much more there and Uh, It would have done a disservice to our audience and to you to 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 focus solely on that. I mean, sure. And again, I know you you would have taken from a strategic and tactical standpoint. There would have never been any real gory details or anything like that. So uh, I I would have been I would have been fishing for for something I would have never caught on the end of the line. That's that's how well I know you. But um, and I will say again. Uh, to you personally, I, I mean, even to this day, I love you like a brother. i lay down in traffic for you without even a hesitation. Um, I'm glad after all these years we still have a friendship and still maintain a relationship, even if it's just in passing through social media. But um, I hearken back to those nights and, and those discussions that you and I had um, that, that helped me into, into the soldier and leader that I am today and certainly uh, the man that I am today because we spent a lot more discussions too. They weren't just military-related. You and I were just two guys um, like yeah, kicking back and, and getting to know each other a little better.
0: Well, Mark, uh, thanks for having me on the show. And, you know, congrats on the, uh, the, the expanded family and all the success in broadcasting. I mean, one thing I've loved about watching you go after it is I think you mentioned this back, uh, back in Iraq of like, this is what you wanted to do. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you're, and it's not a straight line progress, is it? I mean, mm-hmm. like it's like fits and starts and peaks and valleys and all that. And, and, uh, I love watch, watching your career on this. And hopefully next time this won't be over Zoom, but uh, in person over a beer. Absolutely.
1: Well, again, best of luck. Uh, continued success. Best to you and the family. And uh, I couldn't be happier to say these to you. Tommy Sowers, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground.
0: All right. Thanks, Mark. Take care. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell, And you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.